Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. My favorite plant to grow in my yard is the fruit tree because you plant it once and you get fruit for decades. If you have ever been curious on the best ways to be successful in growing fruit trees, today is your lucky day. Why? Because my team and I have compiled our best interviews and videos in one place to assist you in growing your own toe-tingling peaches and awesome apples right out your front or back door. Plus, as an added bonus, we've included an in-depth guide to successfully growing fruit trees in your yard. To get access to this information, it's free by the way, just go to urbanorchard.org or text FRUIT to 33444. That's urbanorchard.org or text FRUIT to 33444. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Jeff Moyer of the Rodale Institute to talk about creating the Organic Farmers Association. Jeff is a world-renowned authority in organic agriculture. His expertise includes organic crop production systems with a focus on weed management, crop covers, crop rotation, equipment modification and use, and facilities design. Jeff is perhaps most well-known for conceptualizing and popularizing the no-till roller crimper for use in organic agriculture. In 2011, he wrote Organic No-Till Farming, a publication that has become a resource for farmers throughout the world. In September 2015, Jeff was appointed as executive director of Rodale Institute after spending the last four decades there helping countless farmers make the transition from conventional, chemical-based farming to organic methods. Welcome to the show today, Jeff. Hi, Greg. Real pleasure to be here. Well, and thank you so much. I'm excited that you're here. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Well, the path that we used to get to the Organic Farmers Association is really a long one and sort of mirrors my own career uh-huh. at the Rodale Institute, because in talking to farmers, we soon discovered that there's a gap, there's something missing in our ability to talk to policymakers. As with any industry, organic farming is subject to the input of policies that are generated on both the state and local level, but also on the national level. Uh-huh. We have a nationally recognized organic trade association known as OTA, mm-hmm. and we also have a nationally recognized organic consumers association. But people might find it interesting to know that we don't have a nationally recognized or a national platform for the organic farmer's voice. Yeah. We, we currently have around 15,000 certified organic farm operations in this country, give or take a few. Wow. Uh, the number does fluctuate a little bit. And yet there's no opportunity for those farmers to have a voice in the arena or in the national forum that helps to generate policies that impact them on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So in that, in that void, 
other organizations like OTA or the Organic Consumers Association often say that they represent or speak for organic farmers. And while they may have the very best of intentions, it's really not the same as people uh, or, or, or you know, individuals speaking for themselves. So in our quest for giving farmers that voice, we decided to create the Organic Farmers Association. We thought nobody would be better at doing that than the Rodale Institute because we have a very long history of being a trusted voice to organic farmers and to policymakers at the same time. So we, we have this history of being a, a respectful voice, voice of reason in yep. the organic community, yep. and also a trusted uh, opportunity for farmers to come and get information on the production level or scientists on a, on a research level. So we've already got that credibility built up, and we thought we are the perfect organization to step in and try to fill that void and give farmers the voice that they so richly deserve. Absolutely. So tell us more about the Rodale Institute. What do you guys do? Well, the Rodale Institute is a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 charitable organization, and our mission is really all about transitioning farms and farmers to certified organic operations. Mm-hmm. Way, ba- way back in 1942, our founder, J.I. Rodale, who really was the first person to put the word organic in front of agriculture here in the United States, wrote some words on a blackboard. And what he wrote on the blackboard was he wrote, healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. Wow. Now, I, never, I never knew J.I. Rodale, uh-huh. but I'm feel certain that he would have no idea how powerful those words really were yeah. or what they really meant. Because along with being the executive director of the Rodale Institute, I also helped man- my son manage an organic farm at home. And what he was really telling all of us as organic farmers is that our job, our task, is not to produce food. It's not even to manage the soil. It's to set up an environment in which people can eat and eat healthy. So our goal is to produce healthy people. That really changes the way we look at agriculture. Oh, big time. Yeah, it forces us to put our decision-making process through a unique sieve. So, for example, when we think about things that are not allowed in organic agriculture, Uh for example, uh, Roundup. Yeah. If the goal is to kill weeds, Certainly, Roundup does that. I mean, that's what it's designed to do, and we would all agree that it works. It'll kill green living plants. But yeah, Rodale said that's not the goal. The goal is to produce healthy people. So then we ask ourselves, does spraying Roundup make people healthy? Hmm. Well, no. No one would say that. Yeah. It's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't move us in the direction of, of, of obtaining our goal, so why would we use that tool? If that were the case, then the more Roundup we'd spray, the healthier people would get, and that's just not the truth. Right. Similar to smoking, you know, people might say we could argue about whether smoking makes us unhealthy or not, but nobody would ever say the best path to human health is by smoking cigarettes. Right. So the more healthy you get, no one would ever consider saying that or believing it. Right. So why would you do it? Nobody would smoke to get healthy. If our goal is to be healthy, we should not smoke. It's as simple as that, and it's the same with soil. If our own personal health is truly linked to the health of the soil, then as farmers, the tools that we use to produce food also have to make the soil healthier. And that's really where GI Rodale came about. That's where the Rodale Institute came about. And what's happened in between 1942 and 1947, uh, GI Rodale actually wanted to take funds out of his pocket and give them to universities to do organic research, and they wouldn't do it. Really? No, they in that they really wanted to work on what they called modern agriculture or input-based agriculture and that the, the kinds of production methods he was talking about really had no place in the future of food production. Wow. And so he decided to create his own institution, which he did in 1947. Mm-hmm. Originally it was called the Soil and Health Foundation, but now it's morphed into the Rodale Institute, which is what we, we have today. We have a 330-acre research facility located in southeastern Pennsylvania where we actually conduct our own field research in conjunction now with many land-grant universities 
even the United States Department of Agriculture. Wow. Has research that we work together on. So we know we've come a long way in the last 70 years, but we also understand we have a long way to go if we are to really, truly change the face of agriculture, and that is our goal, nothing less than changing the food production system we have yeah. in this country and the world. Yeah, wow. Oh my gosh, about 25 years ago, I did a, a seminar, and in that seminar, you had to create a vision for your future, and what I created myself to be is the person on the planet responsible for transforming our food system. Right. And yeah, and so that's what, you know, who knows whether I'll ever get there, but I get to do that every day. And it sounds to me like you're completely dedicated to that as well, transforming our food system. That's, that's what we're all about, and we use many tools to do that. We have a very diverse research set of research tools on our farm that we work on daily to not only create applied science processes to develop tools farmers can put in place immediately, uh-huh. which is the work that I was doing with, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation here, organic no-till, and we can talk about that more if you'd like. Yeah, we will. But that's really kind of applied research. It's, it's research geared towards direct application of, of production. Mm-hmm. But then there's also some basic research that we do. Basic research is really designed to address some of the basic questions, basic processes that are in play that make something work or not work. The reason that work is really important is because it allows us to adapt and adopt our research findings across a much broader climate and, and uh, regional basis. For example, something that works here in Pennsylvania may not work in Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, yeah. But the principles in place would be transferable, so we have to understand what those basic functions are, how those principles work, and then we can transfer them across a real broad spectrum. The actual production practice is going to have to change and adjust. For example, we use cover crops. The cover crops I plant here in Pennsylvania would assuredly not be the same as ones you'd plant in Arizona, nor would the timing of them be the same. So every region has to understand that some nuances have to be worked out for the region but the basic principle of covering the soil with something green and growing to transfer energy from the sun into microbial activity in the soil, that works everywhere uh, around the world. Yeah. So some of those basic principles are very transferable. So we do that kind of work. We also have a very dynamic education and outreach team here because it's not good enough for a small organization like the Rodale Institute to do novel research unless we can get that message out to a much broader audience. And that audience includes not just farmers or other scientists, but even consumers. Because one of the things that have made, that's made organic the wonderful uh, marketing tool that it is today for mm-hmm. farmers is that consumers want the product. Yeah. You know, there's two ways to market products. One is you create the product and then try to convince people they need it. Right. The other is listen to people, find out what they really want, hmm. and then produce them. And that's what we're doing in organic agriculture. We're listening to what consumers really want, those consumers that want healthy products that are produced in a healthy way that manage the resources in a way that actually regenerates them. And we can talk more about regenerative agriculture. But they want those products. They feel that they're important to their lifestyle and their well-being and their personal health. And then we produce it for them. Wow. That's a big mission you guys have there. Yeah, it is. It's a very dynamic issue. And what we're fortunate is that our mission, in terms of our, our tagline, healthy soil, healthy food, healthy people, has not changed since 1942. Hmm. The only thing we've done now, if you look at our website, www.rodaleinstitute.org, mm-hmm. is that we've added the word planet behind it. Because we really believe that by managing the soil differently, we can actually combat climate change. Another important issue to hopefully many of your listeners and thinking about what they can do to help mitigate the problems of of carbon in the atmosphere, simply buying organic food can have a huge impact on how we sequester carbon. That's a pretty powerful tool, and it's something everybody can put to work immediately. Yeah. Now, Maria Rodale uh, wrote a book on this recently, did she not? 
Yeah, she wrote a book about organic, and it's called The Organic Manifesto. Mm -hmm. uh, her book, what's really unique about her book is that it's not just Maria Rodale, for lack of a better term, pontificating about the benefits of organic. She really delved into the science of, of organic agriculture and its link, the links between healthy soil, healthy food, healthy people, and even a healthy planet. Yeah. And her, her book is, is highly uh, cited, uh, filled with citations of research papers that collaborate, uh, corroborate exactly what she's saying. So again, it's not just her opinion or, or her talking about something. It's really based on science, and that makes that book quite exciting. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, it was an interesting read. I got it soon after you guys released it. Yeah, good book to read for all our listeners out there. It absolutely is. So you mentioned several terms that, that kind of wrap all into one, and I want to start with, you said regenerative agriculture. Can you say yes. more about what that is? Well, I'd be glad to. You know, regenerative agriculture is kind of a complex concept to get across. And when uh, G.I. Rodell's son, Robert Rodell, took over the company in, after his father passed away in 1971, he really began to look at agriculture as just part of a more complex system. So rather than thinking solely about the health of the soil and its impact on individual health, he said, what about the health of communities, the health of society as a whole? How does agriculture play a role in a positive or negative role in impacting that? Mm -hmm. And so he was really concerned about this idea of regeneration or making something, making a resource better while you use it. You know, unfortunately, we've gravitated to an industrial model mm -hmm. for food production around the world. An industrial model works very well for a factory because you can bring raw materials into a factory, create a product, and send it out the other end. And it's just the factory is really a pass-through mechanism. And in, in doing that, the, we all know that the factory is going to wear out. We're not using factories that were built in 1860. We're using factories that are built in the last few years right. if we want to be efficient. The problem when we use that model on biological systems is if the factory wears out, we can't rebuild it. Yeah. So what Bob Rodale was suggesting was he was an avid bicycle rider. In fact, he built a velodrome to help the Olympic, the U.S. Olympic team train for bicycling events. I'm not a cyclist, but... He was, and he said to me, you know, when I ride my cycle, the only thing that wears out is the bicycle. I actually get healthier and improved mm. because I regenerate myself. I get stronger the more I ride right. because I am a composite of, of biological organic systems. So if we think of the soil in that regard, he said, can't we exercise the soil, make it work? and have it actually get better while it produces food. So it's a different way of looking at the soil. It's not a factory where inputs come in and outputs go out. Mm -hmm. Rather, it's a system of living, breathing organisms that we can make work, exercise, make function at a very high level, and actually improve it while we use it. So that's the idea, the concept behind regenerative agriculture, mm -hmm. that we're using the soil and we're improving the soil while we're using it. And because it's based on biology, not simply chemistry or input, right. we can do that. And it, what ties into all this is your book on organic no-till farming, because that really addresses how we go about creating healthier soil, I would suspect, yes? Yes, absolutely. If we look at soil as a system of living, breathing organisms, uh, along with a, a mineral component, uh -huh. we really have to start asking ourselves, as even as organic farmers, managing that resource and trying to improve it, trying to regenerate it, what happens when we come out and do tillage? Well, it's not hard to imagine or picture yourself as an earthworm. Tillage day is not a good day. Yeah. You know, suddenly your entire world is turned upside down, whether it's a home gardener doing it with a shovel or a trowel or a rototiller mm -hmm. or a farmer out with a big tractor and a chisel plow, you know, that's, that's kind of hard on the life forms in the soil, whether it's microscopic or macroscopic like an earthworm uh, or microbial. We know that we destroy uh, certain components of the soil 
through a tillage operation. We also know uh, or recognize that within organic systems, we typically do till the soil a bit because we have to do something to manage that resource in a way that prevents weeds from taking over. Right. No matter where we are in the world, there's a sort of a succession that takes place within the plant community as the landscape tries to continuously return to whatever its native state would be. Mm-hmm. Here in the east, for example, we have hardwood forests, and so our soils would like to be a 70-foot-tall hardwood forest. Now, unfortunately, we don't eat trees as a human species, and so we want to manage the landscape in such a way that we can produce foods that we eat. So in order to do that, we till the soil to prevent the system from continuously trying to return back to a a forest. In a conventional world, we've gotten around that and been able to eliminate, reduce or eliminate tillage through the use of chemicals. We simply burn those weeds off and prevent the weeds from, first you'll start with annual weeds, and once they're established, some perennial weeds will move in, we'll get some brushy species, and eventually hardwood trees would take root and it would become a forest. And Mm -hmm. we know that we let a piece of land let sit fallow for 10 or 15 years, eventually you, you almost would need a bulldozer to clear it. And you couldn't walk through it. It just becomes a thick, dense forest as nature tries to do that. In the, in the Great Plains, it might be tall grass prairie that it's trying to revert back to. And again, we don't eat tall grass prairie grasses as food sources. So we have to manage that landscape in a way that allows us to superimpose on top of it those crops that we consume. In an organic system, what happens is if we don't till the soil, we have very few tools that, in, that enable us to manage that, that succession of, of crops that want to take over. So we we're sort of found ourselves in a bit of a quandary because we, on one hand, we know we don't want to till the soil any more than we have to because right. it uh, has a negative impact on that goal of achieving healthy soil. But yet if we don't do something, we know we're going to end up with species that we don't eat, and that doesn't help us either. So it's a balancing act. And so what we've tried to do here through our organic no-till work is develop some systems that allow us to minimize tillage to only happening once every few years and maximizing the health of the soil, the productivity of the soil as we exercise it, make it work in a regenerative way. And then when we do superimpose a tillage operation on top of it, mitigate that operation with cover crops or compost or some other tool that basically says, sorry, guys, I know I gave you a bad day, had to do it, we're going to move on in a very positive way. Yeah. But I know, for example, here on, uh, in my office, we have mm-hmm. a, a, a guy that works for us, and when my computer doesn't work right, he's the smartest guy in the world. You know, I right. call him and he says, turn it off. Turn it off. I said, well, I don't want to turn it off. I'm using it. He goes, no, turn it off and turn it back on. Mm-hmm. 90% of the time, I turn it off, turn it back on, and the problem has been resolved. Right. The same thing is true with tillage in the soil. It's a little bit like hitting the reset button or the reboot button. And you do some tillage, you reboot, and the system goes back to a steady state and works. Particularly if we, again, mitigate that problem by adding some compost, quickly planting a cover crop, saying uh, essentially to all that microbial life in the soil, sorry guys, I know we took five steps forward over the last two years and now we took one step back, but we're still gaining ground over time. What happens when you do tillage in a conventional system, unfortunately, is you do tillage in combination with salt-based fertilizers and herbicides. Yeah. And we actually destroy the, the very ability of the soil to function as soil is supposed to. We destroy the aggregate stability of the soil, and the soil can't recover before the next negative operation happens. And so we continuously take steps backwards, backwards, back. If we understand that the soil is a system of living, breathing organisms, then clearly we would not dump salt on it or spray poisons on it. And that's really what J.I. Rodale was saying. He was not a, a farmer by nature. Uh-huh. He was a businessman, and he made electrical switch components. Oh, interesting. And, but he bought a farm because he wanted to move his family out of New York City to the farm for the summers. He thought that would be a great place to raise kids, fresh air, countryside, eating and raising and eating healthier, you know, what he called organic food. Mm-hmm. 
he didn't really know what that meant because, again, he wasn't a farmer. But when he talked to people that were either farmers or extension agents for the universities, and he did some research on his own, everybody told him that in order to be a modern farmer, what he had to do was basically bring poisons onto the farm, yeah. kill insects and diseases and, and weeds. And in his mind, not being an agriculturalist, you know, I, I, again, I never, I never met him. I did know his wife very well, because I've been at Rodale for over 40 years now. What he said was, how do I bring, turn poison into healthy food? I just don't understand that alchemy. Right. Somebody please explain that to me. <laughs> no, one, no one could explain how exactly. poison in the landscape would make yeah. people healthy. So why would I do that? So how do we then do that across the large spectrum of our country that we do today. Here, you know, it's November here in Pennsylvania. Everybody's finishing up harvesting their crops. Yep. Uh, I can look out my office window and see people right now uh, packaging up uh, vegetables for the last of our CSA uh, memberships. And then we're slowly getting out of the field. And from now until April, almost every acre of land from here to California is going to be brown. Mm-hmm. That is not... When it's brown, it means no energy is being captured from the sun, right. and all that microbial life in the soil dies. Yeah. Or goes into some sort of senescence, sporulates or cistulates in order to preserve itself, but it's not growing, it's not vigorous, it's not moving forward in terms of its state of health. Right. It's meant to become something green and growing, and that's what we try to do. Right. So how do we go from that in our in many of our yards to healthy soil. What makes healthy soil? Are there components of healthy soil? Well, you know, that's a great question. There, there certainly are components to healthy soil, but we don't understand very much about what's going on in the soil. You know, it's quite difficult for us to ascertain the complexity of the microbial populations of the soil and how they fluctuate and move and feed. And it seems like the more we learn, the less we know, mm-hmm. because the complexity just grows and grows. Much of what's happening in the soil, we've never even identified who the characters are that are working down right. there. It's just too complex. So there's much more unknown about life in the soil than there is known. So if we think about something that we can relate more uh, closely to and think about our own human health situation, everybody wants to, when we talk about soil health, everybody wants to kind of minimize everything down to one measurement because that's really easy. But it's a little bit like saying we're going to judge our entire health by one measurement and let's pick blood pressure. Right. So that would mean if I go to the doctor and my blood pressure is within the normal levels or or low, I would be considered healthy. I could come in there 400 pounds overweight, wheezing, coughing, with cancer, and you take my blood pressure and say, go home, you're healthy. Well, that's just not true. How can we hope to minimize our soil metrics just that one measurement. Well, yeah. we can't. So what we're trying to do in the short term is look at indicators of soil health. So we want to look at things like uh, soil organic matter. We want to look at microbial diversity. We want to look at aggregate stability. Those are just three kind of simple measurements that we can look at. And then we want to develop some, some production strategies that we know improve those indicators. So, for example, we know that having something green and growing on the surface of the soil 12 months out of the year improves aggregate stability, it improves microbial diversity, and it improves the amount of energy, the carbohydrate energy that's moving into the soil, Mm -hmm. sequestering carbon and improving organic matter. So why wouldn't we utilize those tools that we know work, even if we don't quite understand how well they work or the capacity in which they work, we still understand through the indicators that they do work. In the United States, we have a new agency, not a, not a federal agency, but a new nonprofit called the Soil Health Institute. I happen to sit on their board of directors mm-hmm. and very interested in the future of the Soil Health Institute as it works to try and define what healthy soil is. You know, it's true about anything that happens in in life. If you can control the language, you can very much control the uh, policies that go around that language. Right. A good example would be the right to life movement. And wherever you sit on that spectrum, I would say that nobody on the planet is against life. 
Right. But where do we define life, and how do we define that? That's where the argument begins. So nobody's going to argue that we don't want healthy soil, but how we define that becomes very important, because if we define that health of soil in terms of the status quo of what we have in conventional food production, uh-huh. then, we're, then we're in trouble. Because oh, right. people will say, oh, spraying Roundup, while it doesn't make soil healthy, it doesn't make it unhealthy, so there's no problem in using it. It's kind of inert in terms of the, the health of the soil, so let's just go ahead and use the conventional tools that we already have, and we don't have to morph or move in a different direction. So we, I'm on that board very specifically to argue that we need to move away from inputs that we know destroy uh, the life and the health of the soil and move towards production strategies, which happen to be organically based. You know, it's, it's challenging. You can't tell everybody they have to be organic. Right. You can tell people in this country through government policy that you have to cover the ground with something green and growing. Oh. That means plant cover crops. Uh-huh. That means by default you're going to move towards organic even though you're not organic. If every acre of land in this country during the winter season was covered with a cover crop and, and enabled the microbial life to sustain itself, capture energy from the sun even when there's snow on the ground, we would be in a far better place yeah. than we are today. And so let's take baby steps and move in the right direction. And so I'm hopeful that we can do that through some of these other organizations. Yeah. Also through our Organic Farmers Association, where right. we started our conversation, to bring organic farmers up to speed into the conversation so mm-hmm. that we know we can move in a very positive direction. Nice. So for our home listeners, those, are those people that have a small garden, you know, in their front or backyard, can you give us three things that we can do to create healthier soil that would kind of send us in that direction? Sure, absolutely. Whether you're farming 10,000 acre farm or you have two flower pots, the biology of the system is the same. That's what's really exciting about these principles is that they are scale neutral. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't matter because it's all about the life in the soil. So if you have a small garden or even a flower pot, plant some, when you're not planting your cash crops or the crops you want to harvest, right? something else on the soil that's going to cover it with something green. Plant some clover there. Plant some little grass seed. Plant some legumes in your garden, mm. uh, like hairy vetch or field peas, that you're just going to use to turn back into the soil to add nitrogen to your farm. Nitrogen is a great example. Farmers across the country buy nitrogen hmm. and they plant a crop. Yeah. If they had paid attention in junior high chemistry, they would understand that 78% of the air we breathe (laughs) is nitrogen. Nitrogen is not a limiting factor on planet Earth, a limiting resource. Where it is and the form it is in, that can be limiting the plant growth, true enough. But we do have crops called legumes, which through a relationship with bacteria, sequester nitrogen out of the air and fix it in the soil, where subsequent plants or crops can utilize it. So if all we would do in this country is plant legumes as a cover crop, Mm -hmm. we could reduce our nitrogen fertilizer bill. Nitrogen fertilizer, in order to produce it, also takes a tremendous amount of energy Yeah. because we use a very complex chemical process called the Harbor-Bosch process or the Haber-Bosch process, depending on how you pronounce it. And the Harbor-Bosch process was really designed to build explosives. It's, it's the process that builds dynamite. Oh my. We learned after World War One, when we had all these munitions that we weren't utilizing, that if we broke them apart and used the, the same material that's in dynamite, it makes a salt-based fertilizer that enables plants to grow. Oh my. Now, it is not a complete fertilizer, but it is a source of nitrogen. Right. And we've used that same process to this day. And it's a very energy-intensive process, yeah. but it enables us to take all that nitrogen requirement of a, of a cropping field and shrink it down into a very small package that fits literally in a 50-pound bag <laughs> that you can put out on the field and grow a, uh, grow a crop. Now, unfortunately, the crop that you're growing may be devoid of many micronutrients, another conversation that we could have in how the crops that we're producing today don't meet the nutritional standards that they used to. And that's because we're not, you know, if we don't put it in the soil, if it's not in the soil, it can't be in the food. If it's not in the food, 
it's not in us. Yeah. By the same token, if it is in the soil in the form of a contaminant, then it is in the plant and it is in the food and it unfortunately it is, in, it us. is in us. Yeah. And it's causing negative health aspects. And again, going back to what Jared Rodale said in his in his visionary statement, which I'm sure he stumbled onto because I don't think anybody could be smart enough to have thought this through in such a short period of time. But the idea that our personal health is linked to the health of the soil just becomes more and more manifested in our daily lives, and we see it in our health care costs. We see it today in childhood obesity. We see it in diseases like attention deficit disorder yeah. or autism that is just growing rampant in our country. Mm-hmm. And, and we have no explanation other than it's in the food we're eating. Yeah. And we really need to think about how we're going to alter that. And by simply, uh, your listeners, by simply going out and purchasing organic food can have this huge rippling effect in saying, the way, when I purchase food that's sort of certified organic, I by default am changing the way that soil is being managed. I'm All right. changing the way the farmer's health is. I'm changing the way other people who eat food their personal health. Mm-hmm. I can have that impact by making that one uh, selection or marketing decision yeah. when I'm at the supermarket, the restaurant, or wherever yeah. it is you uh, or your individual listeners purchase their yeah. food product. Amen. Amen to that. So everybody listening, if you don't grow your own food, buy organic. That helps the system. Absolutely. So I tell everybody to grow some food of their own. I think that's an important point. Oh, big Even time. Even if you live in, in, a, in a city and you only have a flower pot, grow something. Yeah. It, it gives you a personal relationship with a vegetable mm-hmm. or a fruit. It, uh, I, I guarantee you will talk to it. You will water it. When you go on vacation, you will ask a neighbor to take care of it. Yeah. And in the end, when you harvest something, and I get this from folks that come back and visit me after they've tried to grow something, They'll, I always hear this. They'll say, you know, that tomato I grew was the best tomato yeah. I ever ate. Amen. Which begs yeah. the question, if a novice who never grew a tomato before could grow the best tomato they ever ate, <laughs> why professionals? Yeah. Well, we don't ask them to. We ask them to do many other things. We ask them to grow the cheapest tomato they possibly can. What other industry do we do that? What other industry do we... You know, I'm wear- I happen to be wearing a sweater right now. It's cool in Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. I would never say this is the cheapest sweater I could possibly find. Right. You can't get a cheaper sweater than this. But yet we brag about the fact that we bought pineapples for 29 cents somewhere, and people go, ooh, ooh, I'll run over there and waste $4 worth of fuel to buy a 29 cent, cent you know, uh, pineapple. pineapple. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Why do we expect food to be cheaper every day and, and not sacrifice in some way the quality not only of the food, but the soil or the farm that produces it. We can't expect yeah. that. And we're foolish to try. Yeah. Wow. So let's talk about the Organic Farmers Association. Um, so it's not just for farmers, although let's start there. Uh, and how is it going to help farmers? Well, uh, yes, the association is designed to carry the voice of organic farmers to Washington for policymakers. It's also designed to give organic farmers an opportunity to talk to each other. We have a lot of organic farmers around the country that feel isolated. Oh, yeah. Because while there, is, while there are 15,000 of us, we're spread across a very large landscape. And there are, there, while there are pockets of farmers that are close to each other, there are also individual farms that feel very isolated. So this membership organization gives them a chance to talk among themselves. It gives them a chance to learn because we're going to be creating web-based tools and, and, and podcasts for them to learn at their own pace in the, in their, from their own homes about subjects that are really important to them, like, for example, organic no-till, so they can learn to manage cover crops without tillage. Right. That's really important, so we're going to have some learning activities. It also gives uh, other organizations that currently exist in, re- in the regional form or a state form mm-hmm. an opportunity to give farmers across the country action alerts that are very important to all of us. So if somebody in one part of the country is struggling or, or needs help in a particular area, they can broadcast that to the entire country and garner more of a national support for 
pieces of, of action or activities that are important, maybe initially locally, but could have national ramifications. Right. So that's important. We see it as a tool for farmers to use as a business-to-business uh, exchange program where one farmer might have some equipment that they're underutilizing that another farmer could utilize oh. without going out spending a ton of money. Right. Or maybe one right. farmer needs hay for his cattle and somebody has excess hay and it's a little bit of an exchange program. So there's ways that farmers will be able to talk to each other, both to share stories, to commiserate, to identify research that's worked somewhere, but also to share products or, or, or resources that they would need or find valuable in that form of an exchange. And then finally, we have opportunities for non-farm members or our conventional farm members that aren't certified organic farmers to join and support and share in that conversation as well. Now, I will say, in the two levels of memberships that we have, the organic farmer membership and the supporting membership, both of which are available to sign up for on our, on our website, uh -huh. when it comes to policy decisions, we are only going to talk to those members that are certified under the USDA certification program. Ah, right. The reason for that is we don't want to dilute the message or the voice that those farmers have by bringing in a, a group of sophisticated organizations or voices that might somehow overshadow or overpower them. Uh, we really want to make sure that organic farmers individually, whether they farm a quarter of an acre or a thousand acres, their voice is heard and they get to have uh, their opportunity to share what's important to them in issues as big as our national farm bill, for example. Oh, right. It should not be those, those policies that impact everyone in the country, but specifically farmers, should not be limited to those farmers that have enough money to hire a lobbyist. <laughs> right. We're going to create our own lobbying force through this Organic Farmers Association. So we see a lot of opportunity here for farmers learn to talk and to get their voice heard and also to share that voice and those learning opportunities with the non-farm public or the non-organic farm public who may just have a very distinct interest in supporting and learning from organic farmers. Yeah. For those non-farmers out there, they can still join, right? Absolutely. They, they can join and they will enjoy every benefit that the uh, organic farmers enjoy except for the ability to vote on issues in which we survey farmers. Perfect. At that point, when it comes to voting, we, we don't hear them because we don't ask them. Yeah. And that's easy for us to do because every certified organic farmer has a number assigned to them by the USDA. Oh, nice. The United States Department of Agriculture assigns them a number, and they'll need to have that number in order for their vote to be counted. Yeah. So it's not that we don't want to listen to other people or that farmers don't want to hear that conversation because it be, could be very or extremely important that your listeners have an idea or an opinion that we want farmers to hear, and that can influence their vote for sure. Yeah. But yet they won't actually be voting themselves. I, 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 maybe I didn't make that clear, but I hope so. Yeah. No, you absolutely did. So if I wanted to join, where do I go? Okay. Anybody that wants to join simply goes to our website, and that's www.rodaleinstitute.org, or you simply go to your browser and Google search or Bing or whoever you're using, Yahoo, just type in Rodale Institute, yeah, and it, it will come pop up. up. Perfect. And then there's a section uh, called Support. On the top bar, in the heading of the top bar, you click on Support, and there's a thing there that says OFA Membership. That's the Organic Farmers. Association membership. You click nice. on there, and it's just a simple matter of clicking a few buttons, and you will be a member of our organization. Nice. We also have a magazine called New Farm that is sort of the, the, the membership publication for the Organic Farmers Association. And the reason we have New Farm and that we call it New Farm, it's actually a, a publication that's been around for a while. If you go back to, I believe it's 1979, mm -hmm. Bob Rodale's looking at a magazine that the publishing Rodale Incorporated had in its stable of publications was called Organic Farming and Gardening. Right. And what happened was Bob Rodale said, you know, I'm getting a lot of letters from farmers that say, why do I have to sift through all the gardening information to find a farming article? 
He also had gardeners that said, this farming stuff doesn't relate to me because the scale is too big. Concentrate more on gardening, please. And so he said, we're really talking to two audiences, even though the subject matter is the same. We should split them out and have two separate publications. And so they created Organic Gardening Magazine and dropped the farming piece off. At the same time, the uh, corporation purchased the farm that now houses the Rodale Institute. Right. And when people were going out to the farm, they still had the original farm that J.I. Rodale purchased. And so when people were going out to the farm from the corporate office, they would say, I'm going to the farm. And people would say, well, which one? Uh. And they would say, the new farm or the old farm. So it's kind of real simplistic, but the name stuck. And we say, yeah. yeah, in reality, we are talking about a new way of farming. It is a new farm. Yeah. And so we created a magazine publication called New Farm. Oh. That started in 1979, and it ran for about uh, 18, 19 years as an in-print publication. But we were not very successful at selling advertising for that. Uh, you can well imagine in the 70s and 80s, organic was still somewhat <laughs> in in the way it was being perceived or received in the community. Right. And so it was growing rather slowly, and we had financial trouble with the magazine. So we simply put it on a shelf. And what we decided to do for our Organic Farmers Association was relaunch that magazine. So in September and October of this year, every certified organic farmer in the nation got a copy of that magazine in its first publication. Oh, nice. In print. The spring issue will be sent again to every farmer in this country. Now, following that, we anticipate that only members will get the magazine because right. we can't afford to just keep sending it out there for free. Wow. But that's the goal, and so hopefully your readers will, will go online, sign up as a member. They'll get a copy of this sent to them in the mail, and it's an exciting time for not only farmers but those who support organic farmers, and yeah. we're real excited to be able to share that yeah. with your listeners today. Yeah. Well, I got a uh, press release for this about a month and a half ago, and when I did, it was like, wow, I'm very excited. I'm so happy for you guys that you're doing this, uh, and I'm excited to be able to share it. So thank you. Well, thank, thank you for doing it. We certainly do appreciate that. Yeah. So what's the driving force behind Rodale? Well, the driving force behind Rodale is to make people healthy. It's really mm. that simple. It sounds altruistic, but that's no. really what we do. Uh, we're trying, and we're doing that through agricultural methods. We're mm -hmm. not doing it by being doctors or physicians. We're doing it by saying, if we change the way we manage the soil, we can change people's health. Yeah. So our goal is to make people healthy, and we're doing that by transitioning farms and farmers to organic. So we want more soil being farmed organically in this country and around the world. That's our mission. That's what makes us get up every day and go to work, is to say, how can we get more farmers? It could be working with consumers yeah. and saying, if you just buy more, farmers would grow more. Yeah. If you tell farmers what you want, they'll do it. It could be like working with policymakers to say, help us create policies that support farmers in this transition process. We certainly understand that any transition, even a good transition, mm -hmm. can be successful on the system. You know, when you uh, graduate from high school and go on to college, that's a transition, and there's stress, and there's, uh, you know, it's, it's yeah. not always easy as you go through that transition. And then when you graduate from college and go into the workforce, there's a, there's a transition, and there's some stress. Well, we recognize that when farmers move from a conventionally-based, chemical-based farming system to one that's organic, there's going to be some stress. How do we create policies that help farmers through that stressful period if we all agree as a nation that it's important for us to improve the health of our soils? Yeah. If we can agree that this is one tool, maybe of many, but a very important tool that helps us support human health, how do we help farmers that want to do that and support that and grow organic food move through that transition process? We may need some policy that helps. Right. And so we work on policy issues. We also work on science issues because we know that farmers move, oh, yes. uh, even though they're a regular business, they, they make their decisions based on hard science. And so we want to make sure that the information that we generate is not just a good story, but it's really based in sound scientific principles. And so yeah. we do a lot of science. We have a very complicated communication program because we know we have to get that message out yeah. to other researchers to help them get on board and do their work. We, we realize and it's not hard to realize that we have limited capacity with, with our staff 
But if we can magnify that work through the capacity of many other brains and many other uh, research labs uh, and field laboratories, we can gain a lot of more knowledge more rapidly and move in a positive direction. So we move, work on many fronts, right. but our right. mission is unchanged, and that is to transition farms and farmers to organic using the multiple tools that we just sort of discussed. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. So I always ask the question, is there a book that's been influential for you in this process? And given that I'm talking to essentially Rodale Press, I'm going to kind of open this up to maybe five great books for our listeners to go out and check out. And we already talked about one, The Organic Manifesto, which is a phenomenal book. How about some other ones from, you know, from your palette or your library of work? Well, you know, my, my favorite book, going back to a book that really helped change my life and, 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 and sort of brought me towards Rodale, was a book called Pay Dirt. Now, I know it's an older book, and it may be out of print. I don't know. It was, print, it was published by Rodale Incorporated. At the time, it was called Rodale Press. Uh-huh. It was written by T.I. Rodale, and it's really a, a kind of a glimpse into his thought process. And that was a book that I had picked up a, a long time ago. In fact, I have a very old copy from when I was back in high school. Wow. And, you know, when I, I grew up on a very small farm. It was more of a hobby farm. But I really enjoyed, I learned at an early age that I enjoyed being outdoors. I did not necessarily enjoy the farming because on a scale that we were doing, it involved that tool that we all know called a shovel. And a lot of shoveling. And I was really not a big fan of shoveling. And so I said, I don't want to have anything to do with agriculture. You know, I want to get out of that. But our farm, our small farm, had a very nice woodlot. And I was really interested in disappearing into the woods as much as I could to escape that shovel. And so I went off to school to become a forester, and I enjoyed forestry. Uh, but when I got out of school, there were no uh, job opportunities for me in forestry, and I uh, ended up uh, working at uh, Rodale Institute based on this concept of that was taking place back in the early and mid-70s, that back-to-the-land movement. Yes, absolutely. I land, built my own house. You know, we Kind of, you, you can probably envision the story, you know, heat with wood, organic gardening, mm-hmm. live off the land. I still live on that farm. I still heat a little bit with wood, but, you know, it's not free like I thought it was. Right. And, you know, other things cost money, too, but the idea of organic food really stuck with me. And so reading old publications like uh, Pay Dirt or even uh, magazines like Mother Earth News, you know, really fueled my yeah. desire that type of lifestyle. Now, obviously, it's, it's grown and matured, and our farm is actually a for-profit farm now under my son's leadership, and we recognize that that, that sort of back-to-the-land movement of the 70s was not very realistic, and if you want to stay, you have to <laughs> make it profitable. Yeah, uh, you have to you know, work And it. then, you know, I don't like to brag because I had help with my book, but my book on organic no-till farming has really inspired people across the country and around the world to think about soil differently. So I would encourage your readers, if we're thinking about education opportunities, whether you're a farmer or not, to to read that book and think about the concepts of life in the soil, cover crops, and how do we manage that, even on a garden scale. It's written for farmers. But there's a lot of information in there that's very relevant to uh, gardeners, even if you don't have a rototiller or anything like that. These, These there's some uh, advice in there about building some tools by hand that you can use uh, your, your foot power and hand power to get the same results. So, I, you know, I think there's a lot of value in that. And I, I, I like that book, not, again, not because I wrote it, but because it's really inspired people to think differently. And that, that's kind of what, as I mature in, in my position here at Rodale, is my goal is to get people to broaden their conversations, inspire them to think differently about resources, and be more imaginative. And I think, at least I'm getting responses from people, that that book has helped them do that. So it's not the be-all and end-all, and it's not necessarily the the most uh, conclusive book on the subject, but it does encourage people to think differently, and that's really why I wrote it. Yeah. Well, beautiful. Thank you for that. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I, I would say that the, for people who aren't farmers and, and are listening to, to this uh, conversation, 
I would say take some action. Understanding that there's a problem is not good enough. Bob Rodale always said to me, he said, don't bring me a problem unless you have a solution. <laughs> yes. Rodale Institute is all about solutions. Yeah. There are a lot of nonprofits that sit around the beltway of Washington, D.C. and scream and yell about the problems, raise money for them, but have no solutions. No solutions, yeah. We're, we're all about solutions, and we have solutions, and we're moving people in the right direction. Those solutions can be pushed by the purchasing power of people who listen to this mm -hmm. conversation. If you go out and buy something that's organic or grow something and do it organically, it inspires you, it changes you, it changes the way you think about food, it changes your relationship to food, and it can also have a huge impact on your own personal health and the health of the, your family that also uh, eats and enjoys the food that you're producing. We certainly recognize that most people in this country, even farmers, don't produce all the food that they eat. They go out and purchase food. So that purchasing decision is really important. Yeah. I tell 12-year-olds all the time that you can change the way food is produced simply by going into the pizza parlor and saying, I would like an organic pizza, please. <laughs> if, and if they say, we don't have that, say, well, when you have it, I'll be back. I'll be back, and yes. We would change the way wheat is produced around the world. 12-year-olds mm -hmm. do that. So we have the power. We need to recognize that and ask for what we want. And if the people are that are listening are food producers, then I would encourage them to really take a hard look at what they're doing, why they're doing it, and see if there isn't a better way. We certainly would never tell any farmer in this country that they're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. All mm -hmm. of us are in the same boat trying to feed people and trying to do what consumers have asked us to do. And when somebody asks us to produce the cheapest chicken, the cheapest banana, or the cheapest bag of, of potato chips that we can possibly produce, we are forcing people into making compromises on their farm and with their soil that we should not ask them to make. And so I would say that farmers really should take a look at that, see if there aren't ways that they can take some steps and move in a more positive direction in terms of healthy soil so that we know we can have, in the end, healthy people and a healthy planet. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Jeff. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Well, it certainly was my pleasure. I, I appreciate the fact that you let me uh, ramble on uh, and share some of my thoughts with your audience. I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. So uh, once again, your website so that if uh, people want to find out more or join the Organic Farmers Association, uh, that is? Our website is uh, www.rodaleinstitute.org. Or again, just Google search or browser search mm -hmm. the word Rodale Institute and we'll, we'll pop up. There is only one. Perfect. Plus, you can find the show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash OFA. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. My favorite plant to grow in my yard is the fruit tree because you plant it once and you get fruit for decades. If you have ever been curious on the best ways to be successful in growing fruit trees, today is your lucky day. Why? Because my team and I have compiled our best interviews and videos in one place to assist you in growing your own toe-tingling peaches and awesome apples right out your front or back door. Plus, as an added bonus, we've included an in-depth guide to successfully growing fruit trees in your yard. To get access to this information, it's free by the way, just go to urbanorchard.org or text FRUIT to 33444. That's urbanorchard.org or text FRUIT to 33444. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, 
Hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18 and that was a long time ago. Then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.